Hello, we are the Manic Street Speakers, a podcast where we speak about the preachers. It's like Ron Seal, but in musical podcast form, and not in a tin. Coming up, we have an interview with the brilliant journalist, author, and broadcaster, Dorian Linsky, as we discuss the politics behind the band. But first up, let me introduce you to an asshole. (laughs) Or, Or is she? Is she an asshole? For like an obscure 90s boy band in 911. I was about to call them 911. I need to talk to you about this, but carry on. It's not for me to decide, it's for the public. Is she an asshole for liking Am I the Asshole on Reddit? But we'll need to post on Reddit to find out the answer. It's Emma. Hey! I'm going to do my intro for you and then we need to have a conversation about 911. I'm very sorry. <laughs> not about you being an asshole. I mean, I'd like to think I'm not, but I'm sure plenty of people think I am. (laughs) Okay, your host of this podcast is a podcaster who says he hates the sound of his own voice, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Mikey hates the Tories more. That's true, right? That is true. Lately, in the past few days, we've been very much hoping he's negative for COVID, but I can tell you that he is positive for absolute awesomeness. It's Mikey! Yeah, I do hate the Tories more than I hate my own voice. As you Uh, should, as all of us should. uh, My throat is a bit sore today because I potentially have COVID, but I don't think I do. But I'm I'm awaiting for a test result, uh, which I had on Friday. But honestly, the drive-through centres are so weird, so weird. It's like something from a dystopian film. You, you're, you're literally the only car on site, and you go to di- different checkpoints throughout. And when you go, when you go up to each checkpoint, there's a person standing in front of you with a sign, sa- saying, "Please ring this number." So, oh. so you ring the number, and then they tell you the basic instructions, and then they tell you to open your door uh, window briefly so they can chuck the the test kit in. Then you go somewhere else. And then let's ring this number. The place as a whole reminded me of, of the, the bad scientists in E.T. Oh, my God. <laughs> Elliot. That's what, that's what it reminded me of. It was really weird. But um, At the end yeah. of all of that, you better be negative. Let's pray. Let's really hope yes. that you are. Hopefully the test result will come back today. Otherwise, I can't go back to work. Although, mm. life-threatening disease or going back to work. Mm, yeah. Wait yeah. up. But uh, in terms of, I'm I'm glossing over the Tory thing because yes. I just I can't I can't even even like things that are happening in the last twenty four hours with them, it's 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 too much for my head. Let's pretend they don't exist. There are no Tories. They're not in government. Everything isn't a massive pile of shit. So um, <laughs> yeah, I I need to pick you up because yeah. um, I do. A part of me will always love 911, but unfortunately, a big event happened yesterday in my life. To do with 911? <sighs> yesterday, I unfollowed Lee Brennan on Twitter. Oh, is he one of them? He's one of them. I've unfollowed Howard from Take That. I feel like somewhere the universe is like, no, your previous existence in which you adored boy bands needs to go. So we're just going to make all the members of boy bands anti-mask wankers. And then <laughs> then you might see the error of your ways. I'm genuinely a bit upset. If only they had, like, soundproof masks when they were singing. <laughs> oh, oh, I would have picked you up on that as well. And I just feel like I can't. <laughs> I am I am devastated and I am pleased to say that I did have a conversation on Twitter with a fellow Mannix fan 
hello Gemma if you're listening um who is also a, a take that fan and we were both like mourning we were both like how can how can a member of a band we love be such an arsehole this is the thing Ian Brown's come out well I, was, I, mean, I don't oh, know if it's a surprise God, or not but he's yeah. he's come out with no mask no vaccine well I I must say with Lee from 911 <laughs> He didn't actually write anything that was anti-mask or anti-vaccine. What he did do was like all of Denise Welsh's tweets. And I just thought, that's the same thing. You're just not brave enough to say, I'm also a dickhead. Um, (laughs) Are they the asshole? They are the asshole. Anybody, if you're listening to this, this is, you know, real real talk now. (laughs) Um, Anybody who is going to go on a big rant about being anti-mask, and and anti-vaccine and anybody who uses phrases like it's only the old and the vulnerable who are going to die anyway so it doesn't matter you're the asshole isn't it beautiful how all this just came together the 911 link the asshole link i've always knew i knew 25 years ago i just didn't want to say (laughs) (laughs) shall we have a quick run through of the news let's Even in Exile reached number six in the charts. Woohoo! Thunderous applause. With just over 5,000 sales. Blimey! Isn't that weird? You'd think that would get, I don't know, 15, 20,000. Yeah! So yeah, that surprised me. But it's, it's still a good a good position. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been very busy. It's been like Bradfield Christmas. Oh. He's have you heard his um, uh, set that he did on Absolute Radio? No, I've only just finished listening to his podcasts. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll post a link on, on the show notes. He's played three songs, two new ones, and he did a really good piano version of From Despair to Wear. It's beautiful. And oh. Mel called from the kitchen the other day when I had it on YouTube, and she was like, is that Elton John? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are practically one in the same. Side, open mouth grounds Pass each other as if they're drugs The bell carol does a routine also done a great interview for npo radio 2 which is a dutch station where he goes really in depth it's a very interesting listen i'll post again in the show notes he's done a session on the manix youtube channel it's, it is literally like bradfield christmas new year 
birthdays all at once. Speaking of the podcast, the James podcast, um, inspired by Hara, the final one came out, um, and he put a song right at the end of episode three, Versus Echo with Tear Flow. What did you think of the song? Gorgeous. Yes. It's, I thought it was really, really beautiful. I loved it. It's a song that didn't make the album because of timing reasons, and I, I, I think it's really gutting, really, because it's an, it's quite a chaotic energy to it, and I think it would have complemented the album really well. Yeah, I listened to it. Um, I was in the car on the way back from um, a doctor's appointment, and a, a doctor's appointment is a very weird thing at the moment. <laughs> Um, and I'd had to go and have a scan in Newquay, which is about a 20-minute drive. And my mum, bless her, had driven me there um, because she knew I was a bit stressed. And she said on the way back, oh, do you want to listen to something? Do you want to put something on? And I was like, well, I have been listening to this James Dean Bradfield podcast. My mum is now obsessed with wanting to learn about Victor Hara. <laughs> and she absolutely loved the song. She was like, oh, what a shame this wasn't on the album. Isn't it good? So, yeah, it's not only loved by me, it's also loved by my mum. Classic War Child UK album from 1995 will be reissued. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be out. It'll be coming out on the 9th of September. Past tense has come out on the 9th of September. The vinyl will be limited to 2020 copies, but as this is coming out on the 11th of September, you'll probably have to pay £300 for it on eBay. <sighs> I'm not spending my birthday money on that. I'm sorry, Manix. <laughs> no, of course, they, they appeared with it on. Um, Raindrops keep falling on my head. So, yeah, that's another thing. There's a podcast, Help, the Story of War Child, featuring James. Da-da-da! He really is just getting about. Nikki is working on a, wait for it, quotes, modern electronic soothsaying solo material. That was my, that was a little squee. <laughs> what that means? Um, <laughs> Torres is excited by this. <laughs> no i'm i'm excited because i feel like i never really got to know i killed the zeitgeist very well i never bought it i'm gonna be ex well we're both gonna be excommunicated then that's all right yeah. <laughs> 
let's delve into this episode's B-side. Let's go River Deep, Locust Valley High. That doesn't make sense, doesn't it? Don't analyse that. Locust Valley was the B-side to Found That Soul and released on 26th of February 2001, which is insane how long ago that is. Locust Valley itself is a hamlet and census-designated place in New York Oyster Bay area, which I think essentially means posh. It's a well-to-do area, and to me, from the images of it, it looks very kind of like Santa Clarita diet kind of place. I'd happily move to Santa Clarita. I think I probably would, to be honest. Not going to lie. I'd like to be eaten by Drew Barrymore. Yeah, yeah. She's, yeah, why not? (laughs) If I worded that the other way around. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think the song itself is alluding to the Stepwood Wise insular nature of such places. Like... uh, uh, correspondence school behind all the world the darkest glass is a lyric um, as if these people are connected from reality um, I don't need it I don't fear it it's probably in my reading of it Nikki's rejection of the aspirational bullshit around such things because yeah. uh, despite fame and money himself he doesn't live that way he still is a very working class kind of style um, I'd say it could come across as judgmental, like I don't need it, I don't fear it, but it could just be, I I read it as indifference. I'm going to say something maybe controversial. I prefer it to Found That Soul. Dun dun dun! Do you know when you feel you know someone? I just really love this song. I think it's a really good song. And I I feel like, I don't want to get too deeply into this because one day we'll talk about the album in full, but Know Your Enemy for me, I feel is a slight hodgepodge of an album and I just feel like this song I would have liked to have had this song on the album um but I have written notes because I'm a good student (laughs) I've said um I really love the atmospheric intro to this song there is something almost alien about the juxtaposition favorite word have a drink everyone between the crunchy guitars and the daydreamy sections for me it's like the juxtaposition between reality and this slightly sterile isn't life perfect life that lives that the people that live in areas like this are portrayed at least to live 
I think having both James and Nikki singing in the verses works really well, especially the way the tone of music shifts between their lines, which is a very cool stylistic choice. The line famously unknown is a clever one and always makes me smile. The whole song feels like two halves of a whole struggling for dominance and the sound manages to be experimental despite having a classic manic sound to the chorus. I also adore James's ooze. <laughs> that yeah. sounds very strange. They remind me of Motown Junk. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's very Motown Junk-esque. Yeah, and what you say about Nikki's vocal lines, I've put down it's almost like a duet in a, in a weird way. Mm. Because they, yeah. they're playing off each other, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I do feel like it sort of plays into this vibe of one is very sort of down to earth, very just like, oh, no. It's all, and the other was almost like ethereal quality to it. Like, no, everything's everything's so beautiful here. Come here. And it's like, yeah, it's like this, this fight between... To me, this is how I hear it. It's like this fight between very gritty reality and what is portrayed and i feel like this song is way ahead of its time because now you've got shows like uh geordie shores and towie and real housewives and they're all this bubble of oh, isn't life look how great our life is and then there's reality and i feel like i mean i could go on i could do a whole podcast on my hatred of constructed reality tv shows but i do feel like this this song is almost ahead of its time because i feel like you could apply it to shows like that personally yeah i i agree with a lot of that um the things i love about the songs the chugging riffs as it slowly kicks in the thunderous drums of the chorus get me every time and the d discordant guitar solo it just it yes. it just feels so like stretched and like uneasy mm. um but i agree with you apart from the found that soul comment which I think I think you need a verbal warning for that. <gasps> I think Locust Valley should have been on the album. Mm. I, I just think it's such a good song. I, look, when I say prefer it, it's very difficult. It's quite difficult to compare the two, really. But I, I wrote that I preferred it last night when I was re-listening to this song for the 9,000th time at about half 11 at night. So, you know, maybe I was tired. <laughs> but I, it is hard to compare them because they are very different songs. But I just... I don't know. I think I'd forgotten how much I love this song because I hadn't listened to it in a while. And I listened to it about three or four times last night. And I was like, I've forgotten how much I love this. So good, isn't it? There's, there's so much good stuff around the Know Your Enemy time. I know, like, the argument is true about the album. It is overstretched and there is stuff that yeah. is on it that shouldn't be. Royal Correspondent. <coughs> yeah. Oh, it's that COVID again. <coughs> um, but, you know, plays place this instead of royal correspondent or something like that then yeah you know would you like my score oh yeah go for it i have given it a solid four out of five four out of five for me as well yeah as per norm i put this to twitter and the ratings are as follows 26 percent gave it five stars four stars was 32 percent three stars 32 percent and two stars 11 percent so a joint 32 percent for both Four and three stars so we'll go with a three and a half for that one the comments we've got uh, one of their best b-sides says Jonathan Daniels Manic Dave not their best b-side but far from their worst still catchy Birdshoot says I'm not a fan I have a friend who considers it her favorite Manic song something about its lo-fi abrasiveness and vibe hopping just seems to click with her 
Guess what it's time for? We're summoning the finger, everyone. Would you like me to provide a spooky... A spooky... Yeah, but we've been through this. It's not a ghost. Oh, yeah, we have been through this. If you step away from the spooky aspect... Yeah, okay. Maybe maybe we can do a a Halloween special in a couple of months (laughs) of the finger of Manic's past. Okay. For now, it can just be like a... Okay, I'm scrolling up and down. <laughs> uh, sounds like you're in a church. I mean, okay, look, I just can't get it right today. I'm sorry. It is Monday. It is Monday, and I, I'm very behind with work, so I'm a bad, bad, bad girl. Okay, we've got... I'm just ignoring what you just said. <laughs> the sound of detachment. Ooh, Okay. So we'll do the usual for that one. We will put a poll out. We will come back next episode and talk about detaching things. Excellent. Hopefully nothing important. were you doing on the evening of 31st of December 1999? If you were having pints at the local, we do not want to hear from you. However, if you were in Cardiff for the Manic Millennium, then get in touch. For the next episode, we'll be feeling nostalgic for a bug that was only digital. We want your stories and experiences of that magical night in Wales where a new century offered hope and the music of Ed Sheeran hadn't hurt our brains yet. Send your Manic Millennium memories, and you probably wouldn't have been able to say that on New Year's Eve, to msppod1 at gmail.com. Written and audio messages welcome. Were you there? Now for my interview with journalist and broadcaster Dorian Linsky about the politics of Manic Street Preachers. I could listen to Dorian talk all day about the band, and I thank him for his time. Just a quick point, this was recorded entirely on my side, and there is a hiss in the recording that wasn't apparent in the actual chat. I tried to reduce it as much as I can. For now, here's Dorian Linsky. See you on the other side. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm an avid listener of Romaniacs. It's the soundtrack to my Friday morning commute. Um, what spurred you and the team to make a podcast and narrate these strange Brexit times? Oh, just uh, the producer asked me back in early 2017 if I wanted to do an anti-Brexit podcast. And uh, it was one of those things where you kind of... I mean, there's many, many things politics and just in the world in general where you can feel quite angry and powerless um, and one of the things I like about journalism is sometimes that you can kind of alleviate that sense of powerlessness even if you're not really you know changing the world you are you're sort of ex expressing yourself communicating with other people thinking about things more deeply so I love the idea of you know hosting um, a podcast like that and then it you know evolved into something which I found really uh, you know I think worthwhile journalistically but, but also kind of emotionally valuable to me because uh, we found a kind of we found a humour in it and what, when most listeners say that they uh, yeah, give us feedback most of the time it is about sort of, you know, about the knowledge and insight and so on but it's mostly about humour like allowing them to feel better about this awful thing uh, um, which is a great thing it's something I look for in, in journalism and, and art so it's nice to be able to do that yeah absolutely that's one of the things I found about the podcast even though the subject matters are quite bleak at times and quite challenging there is always that sense of humour that keeps it going through um, did you think it'd still be going on in 2020? No, we didn't know. Well, you know, if you think about how much was unknown, we started just before the 2017 election, and then that changed things, because then it became possible to, you know, slow down, dilute, stop Brexit, potentially. Obviously, we know how that turned out, but it certainly, it then set up, you know, a, a year and a half of, um, no, Two, sorry, two and a half years of um, you know extreme drama uh, in Parliament and the protest movement. You know, we predated the the People's Vote, uh, which again, obviously now that didn't work out. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that events kept events kept changing, and then also you know it was just it became an ex it became a a really nice thing to do with a group of people. You know, none of whom, apart from the producer, I I knew. And funnily enough, the producer commissioned my first Q cover, which was the Monday Street Preachers when he edited Q uh, in 2001. Um, so, but apart from him, I didn't know anyone else. And it was just really nice to sort of form a team and then you get that kind of relationship with your listeners. Uh, and it was, it was like something I, I hadn't done before. No, absolutely. Um, in a somewhat tenuous link, like the Manics, Romaniacs has evolved in a changing world. Now we've had Donald Trump in in the House, we've had COVID-19, but yet Brexit still feels like a dark shadow that looms over the current political craziness. Did Brexit really change politics and society as much as it feels like it has in the past five years? Well, it changed it by dominating it um, and squeezing out a lot of um, opportunities for sort of other other conversations, other policies. I mean, I suppose with the Conservative government, you could say that was a blessing. Uh, but you would also like to think that perhaps the government might have addressed certain problems if it hadn't been so tied up in Brexit. I think the main 
the main thing for me, if you look at it in a kind of international context, is it's just revealing this um, this enormous cultural divide, which you know, in different forms, you're seeing uh, you're seeing around the world. You know, very much kind of the rural, the small towns, the old. Um, you know, often very conser- often conservative uh, people, mm. but but here in you know in, in Britain, that actually did mean that lots of people who were traditionally Labour voters. I don't know if I'd say they were left-wing, but certainly traditionally Labour voters um, turning to the right really on, on cultural issues, because still, if you break down the kind of economic prospectus of uh, Brexit, it's very, it's very dubious. You still can't, I still can't see what the economic benefits are meant to be. The economic harms are very obvious, uh, but, you know, it hasn't really been an economic argument for years. It just became... Uh, it became the sort of culture war. It became. We don't have a Trump figure, uh, but Brexit is a sort of Trump in the form of an idea. It gave uh, big... You know, which is isolationism and nativism, and kind of guts, emotions over facts and sound bites. Sound bites have become a really big thing, haven't they? Well, I, mean, I suppose sound bites have always been. They've always been part of politics but it, it just seems that they can kind of they seem more powerful they seem to sort of be able to steamroller other concerns and I still don't know why I think a lot of a lot of people who supported who support Brexit now and I'm talking about people in 2016 who might not have known exactly what they were you know voting for but the people that continue to vote for it which is most of those people very, you know, very few people in fact did change their minds I still don't know what they think they're going to get I, I don't know who they're lashing out at you know because back then they were lashing out at david cameron now you've got you know david cameron's etonian chum boris johnson pushing through brexit so obviously it wasn't really about that it wasn't oh we don't like old etonians or we don't like the you know we don't like the tory government um they really love this idea and what it represents but i don't know what they think it's going to do for them uh in their in their lives like i genuinely I genuinely don't. I genuinely can't see where the where the benefits will come out. Yeah, I mean the internet has been has gone has been so much worse than anyone expected. I think it's it's really gone horribly wrong in in many ways. I think most people, you know, who think about this stuff would acknowledge that uh, in terms of the misinformation, in terms of the spread, for example, of conspiracy theories like something as weird as QAnon could not have had any real power, you know back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the kind of the 90s era of the internet would have been like a kind of curious uh, crank thing on the internet then. Um, and now, you know, and it's, an, it's, an, it's absolutely absurd. On its face, it's an absurd conspiracy theory. It's not just like a, a right-wing belief that I don't share. It's, it's ridiculous. And yet it seems to have a great deal of power. Um, and there's lots of other ways in which the internet has sort of changed the way that people get their information. It's undermined the business models of, you know, many journalistic outlets, some of which have adapted, some of which haven't. Um, it's made us more angry and combative. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I think it, it's undoubtedly, yes, there is something cyclical about these sort of certain... Uh, anxieties and dark forces that sort of come up from time to time. So you can look at the 1930s, you can look at the 1970s, and, and they would, you know, talk about new media in the 
1930s, saying George Orwell, uh, you know, was talking about how dangerous radio was, you know, because it did enable, you know, could you could you get totalitarianism or could you get certainly could you get fascism without the power of radio? Um, so of course there have been other forms of technology which allow, um, you know, to, to sort of stir these kind of darker emotions to spread misinformation, but you know, but none as sophisticated and all-consuming as the internet. The internet used to be a thing that you might choose to go on to. Exactly. It certainly was for me. Like in the nineties, you know, second half of the nineties, so I might go on the internet. I might not. Now it's sort of where we all live. Yeah, it crawls into every aspect of our lives now, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no there's no part really that is that is untouched by it, and then you get uh, these sort of bizarre distortions that take place in sort of political reality that come from uh, that come from the internet, and that you wouldn't you wouldn't have Donald Trump without without the internet. Well, on to less depressing things. Uh, let's talk about the happiest band in the world, Manic Street Preachers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you initially get into the band? What was your gateway in? It was quite late, actually, because I did... I sort of... Basically, I had quite strict musical likes and dislikes, and I really didn't like guitar solos. I just thought guitar solos were, were, <laughs> were terrible on principle. Which obviously kind of ruled out the uh, the early Manics uh, for me, and I, so there were these sort of fascinating characters in the music press, you know, who I enjoyed reading their interviews, and I just enjoyed how just amazingly um, provocative they were, and larger than life, and it was a time when you kind of had a lot of you know sort of baggy and shoegazing and kind of indie bands in big shorts. And they just had this kind of mix of like DIY glamour and sort of political radicalism, but not attached to any particular political cause. It was like, it was very uniquely them, incredibly, you know, literate. And they had this kind of little, you know, little cosmos of books and films and records that mattered. And it was all about really mattering. And so I sort of admired them. Um, but it wasn't the kind of music that I was sort of listening to. And then I did almost, I was meant to interview them for the university paper uh, around on when they played uh, Cambridge on the Holy Bible tour, uh, which got cancelled at the last minute. And it's just as well, really, because I don't think that I was up to, you know, as a student journalist, I really wasn't up to the challenge of that record mm. and the band they were at that time. Yeah. And I've since interviewed them quite a few times and, and I have a really nice relationship with them as, as, as people. And, you know, I think there's another universe in which I would have just gone and asked some really dumb questions. Well, in 1994, you might have been asking James to stop doing so many solos. I would probably have left the solo <laughs> machine. There would have been other... But I would have been crass. I don't think there's so much in... It was pretty politicised, but, you know, there's so much in the Holy Bible and that they, they were so far ahead intellectually of most bands and of indeed me uh, at that point um, that I don't think I could have done justice to it there was just I, I do remember just thinking I just do not know what to make of this record <laughs> it, it seems like it seems extraordinary but there was like too much uh, for me to process and so it was actually later and it was with the kind of uh, in the Holy Bible has become like my favourite Malik's album it was with Everything Must Go and um I remember being particularly, you know, obsessed with 
with Design for Life and Kevin Carter, and then obsessed again with If You Tolerate This, which I just think is a you know, truly phenomenal record and an absolutely remarkable record to go to number one. Um, and then I sort of, so, yeah, so I sort of went backwards, and then I guess I'd end up interviewing them towards the end of 2000 for Know Your Enemy. Um, and it was almost sort of like talking to them where I was like, I just got, I got them. Mm. in a way that I don't think I had before. Most bands starting out aspire to leave their hometowns and want something better. I think the Manics had that, but I think they also strove to be something important, to stand up and be heard. Um, how much of that do you think can be attributed to growing up during the minor strikes and the Thatcher government? Well, lots of bands grew up, obviously, during the Thatcher government. Um, so that's not it. it it's, it's their, f- yeah, it's the, it's, could be their location, uh, partly, you know, Blackwood, and I think the first, uh, the first song, the first lyric that Nicky wrote was called Aftermath 84, um, mm. uh, you know, which is about the minor strike, and obviously that is a really, that's a case of politics reconfiguring, you know, your, your, your lived environment, which a lot of people don't have, they can, they, they can still, be angry about politics or something on the news um, but there are particular kind of places and circumstances obviously to do with class and geography where it, it really does change uh, your surroundings so that is part of it but I also think they just had very you know, very um, nurturing and intelligent and emotionally intelligent parents you know they are people who really like love their parents and talk about them in in a way that's you know a lot of artists don't there's an empathy there isn't there yeah it's really important and you can tell they've talked about an interview when they've lost them you know but songs about loss um you know those things that that, that, those really matter they were set up well for life they also had that they, they were part of that real kind of uh working class autodidact i mean not entirely auto you know well at school as well but this kind of voraciousness for information the idea that you should um, that you should know a lot and you should read and that that was sort of sexy they would have mm. portrayed that but it was kind of cool and it was sexy to like know a lot um, and they also there's that thing that happens with bands where they they inspire each other and they become more than they would be separate and these people that were, you know, they're, they're school friends, but they were kind of extraordinary people. Um, if you look at them as, as sort of individual talents, the idea that they were all just sort of school friends in the same world's town, and that, that you, know, some, you know, two of them were just these fantastic musicians, incredibly versatile musicians as well, um, and two of them were these kind of wildly brilliant lyricists. Uh, and I do believe that there's something in in great bands where they're feeding off each other that you couldn't have had them all go off and do their own solo thing and, and, and have achieved anything like that it's like if you're surrounded by talented clever people who excite you they make you more talented and clever and they stood out because they if you if you see them in a line together they don't look like they fit and I think that's another thing because a lot of bands look quite generic and that they had that, that going on as well yeah they all had kind of like uh, characters in different ways. There was something motley about them, and there was a, a kind of 
uh, an openness to ridicule, which I really, uh, I admire more, even more looking back than I did at the time, you know, because there was quite a lot of piss taking in the music press. And they sort of didn't mind if some people, they were supposed to be deadly serious in many ways, but they didn't mind if people thought that they were silly. They didn't mind if they were misunderstood. Uh, and I think to sort of skip forward a bit, if you look at the context that we're in now, the cultural context, it's like people are terrified of being misunderstood. Mm. The things coming across the, the, the wrong way and sort of playing with, uh, playing with fire it, it's not something you could do. You couldn't be a band like the Young Manics now. You just couldn't. You couldn't say some of those things and do some of those things and not be sort of smacked down. And there's a fearless quality. I think that is, that's so important and so exciting in artists where it was just like they didn't care if you disagreed with them and you didn't care if you didn't like them and they didn't care if you laughed at them through stuff at them. There was a kind of, there's a phrase that Nicky Wire used when I interviewed him once, where he said, we felt an uncommonness with the universe, which is just an amazing description yeah. of, band of like outsiders. But weirdly, they didn't hate where they grew up. <laughs> That's the thing. You always think, oh, they can wait to get out. But, you know, they, they still live in Wales. Um, that really wasn't what they were trying to get away from. They were always trying to get away from everything else in culture and all the other bands in the music press. And it was just this brilliant sort of flamboyant act of resistance and they didn't mind making a mess. Uh, and I don't think you get... I think it's hard to find a band as brilliantly messy as they were at the beginning. Well, there's that the old theory, like if Richie was around now and had a Twitter account, what would he be doing with that Twitter account? Would he <laughs> be saying controversial things? Would he, you know, would he be just piling his intellect into it? I mean, it's an argument for putting it in art, you know, that there's stuff that, you know, there's lines on the Holy Bible where if you put them in a tweet, you just think, you know, that would go terribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're, you know, you can do these, you can do these things in art. There's a great sort of bravery there. And I don't think, um, I don't think Twitter would have served him well. There's quite a lot of people from that. I mean, Bill Hicks, who was sort of a contemporary, I mean, he was a bit older, but he, he kind of, I think he died in 94, and he was definitely like a, a big figure for me in the early 90s. He was someone I did actually see, uh, I see do a show. And he's one of those other people who think, well, now, what, you know, what would he have, where would, his, where would his brain and personality have led him? You know, would mm. he be would he be on Infowars? Would he be tweeting horrible conspiracy theories? Would he be you know Would he be a guest on Alex Jones? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Would he be defending a comedian you know, in a Me Too cave? Like it, there's lots of thing you don't know you basically you don't know because people do change and people can go in lots of directions and the thing is with riches you don't know and some people go, Oh well would he have been like writing for spikes online? I really hope not but he, because he, he kind of he disappeared after this unbelievably complicated record mm. and you really have no idea um, you know in which direction it would have in which direction it would have led him and how much was to do with 
you know, circumstances in his life at the time. And I was thinking the other day, it came across to me that I can't think, not that I'm up to date that much on modern music, but I can't think of any artists that has achieved commercial success by extolling right-wing views, certainly in their music anyway. I, I mean, there's lots of artists that say things on Twitter or in interviews that are sure. dubious. I think if you started listing genuinely successful socialist bands, I think you'd find it quite a short list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think most people, the politics they project is, is, a, broad, is a general sort of liberalism. It's a sort of do you know? Leave me alone to do my thing. You know, I do think my my sort of theory on this is that you know rock music is inherently libertarian. Mm. You know, I mean the Beatles did a song about how they didn't like paying high taxes. It's like it's you know a lot of these a lot of the early rock and roll songs are all just about leave me alone. That's the parents or the government. Let me do my thing. That is the politics really of rock music, and there's not that many sort of. There are a few kind of Marxist, uh, you know, punk bands and indie bands, but there's not many because if you start talking about socialism and, and you know, it's, it's not whatever, it's not fashionable, state, is it? It's not very, you know, a lot of it's kind of socialism is quite sort of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of boring. It's getting mm. things done. It's sort of meetings and planning and stuff like that. So there's not many, really, I think, socialist bands. And being nice to people, which isn't very rock and roll, I suppose. Well, it depends on the kind of... But it's a very kind of... It's almost a bureaucratic... There's a, there's a bureaucratic... You're being bureaucratically nice, otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. So you can certainly have niceness. You can be a kind of groovy, psychedelic band that has love for all the people. You know, that can read as left-wing. But it's not socialist. Hmm. And even the Manics, I think the politics of the Manics, and why I think I just find them so uniquely, so admirable and rewarding as a political band is that you can't, there's so much ambivalence there, and there's so much self-questioning, and you don't know what they're going to think about things. And I would say there are contradictions as well. That, you know, because and that, and that's a part of being human, essentially, that, you know, what they think one album, they might disassociate with the, the next album right because there's, there's these sort of I mean the Holy Bible people think about more because it is obviously held up as this sort of masterpiece and there's a lot there's a lot going on there but there's you know odd political stances mm. there you know a song that's anti-gun control because at the time the Brady Bill was seen as uh, a sort of racist bill which was kind of penalising uh, like black gun owners but you know in the history of gun control America, you would still say, certainly in hindsight, you'd go, well, I'm glad, th I'm glad there was a bill to control guns. And that was a, that, that was an odd sort of take. PCP, there's a sort of anti-political correctness, so that wasn't a safe left-wing position. And you can understand why someone like Richie would have been against the sort of more doctrinaire, uh, sort of finger-wagging bits of political correctness. Like, I get that, but, but what I mean is you can't necessarily say left right it's very anti-totalitarian um it's sort of anti-fascist and yet some of them almost i once said to think to nick as a that that faster sounded almost fascistic and mm. it's horrifying you know, yeah. it's horrifying but i mean it does and 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 they're dressing up in military gear 
But then that was a big jumble of stuff as well. Yeah. You know, they're wearing military gear from all over. They're no Nazi uniforms, obviously. <laughs> um, it's sort of, it's an insoluble record because there is so much going on and so many thoughts that, that, that aren't quite completed and sort of interesting provocations. And, and, and there is some of that later on as well. I was thinking about, because the, the album that I first met them over was Know Your Enemy, which was obviously not held up as one of the classics. There's loads of brilliant stuff on it. Um, it's just got too much stuff on it. And, uh, and there's a song on that called Freedom of Speech Won't Feed My Children. And it's sort of from a point of view of a character, but it's sort of what I think Nicky Wire would have thought in certain moments. Mm. Uh, you know, but that's a really challenging, you're like, ha, huh, okay. <laughs> you know, what's being defended here? What's being criticised? Um, the Love of Richard Nixon, absolutely bizarre uh, single, which I really like. They don't like. They have so, written it off, but yeah, I love it too. Which is an in-joke with them. They're yeah. just like, ha, you're the one who likes... You're the one who likes the love of Richard Nixon. I think, I think they did a thing, maybe on a website or a sleeve notes or something, where they asked a lot of different writers to write about a song, to choose a song from the greatest hits to write about. And I think I did love of Richard Nixon because no one else wanted to. <laughs> and they were just like, you like this more than we do. <laughs> um, because, But again, I suppose I'm always drawn to the manics when you just go, who else would do this? It's that sense of expanding the possibilities it's actually quite it's quite easy to do a fairly safe left wing it's mm. a lefty position it's not necessarily brave it can be brave depending on your context if you're the Dixie Chicks criticising George Bush during the right war it, it turns out to be immensely brave but I mean a lot of kind of left wing statements in music they're not that brave because that's generally what the audience thinks um, whereas the Maddox would do stuff where you're like that they would they would deliberately go for the bits that weren't um, that weren't safe where there wasn't a consensus. You know, if you tolerate this, it's like a pro-war song. It's a very a pro a very specific war, but nonetheless, who else? You know, other like a jingoistic country singer, <laughs> who else writes pro-war songs? Like it's about a lot of things that song. Yeah. Um, and so it's so, and that's why I think they're really interesting, and why they're always interesting to talk to about politics, because because they're not going to come out with the thing that you could get from anyone else, which is like, oh, Donald Trump is bad. You know, Brexit stinks. Even though I believe those things, you you're going to get like another thought, and it's not about being contrarian. It's not about saying actually I like Donald Trump. It's about finding a different angle something a little deeper and you can see that in the songs they haven't they could easily have come out with a whole bunch of anti-brexit songs and they didn't well that's it that's part of me wants the band to release a kind of political album but part of me also accepts that coming from a bunch of 50 year olds it's going to be seen as lecturing and it's not it's not really their place because they will now be preaching to the converted. I think most process songs are preaching to the converted. I think that's fine. True, yeah. Um, it's like, it's totally fine. You know, Drive-By Truckers, the last two albums have just been total wall-to-wall -wall sort of protest songs. 
It's great. They're probably talking to kind of like middle-aged liberals, you know, and they, they, they you know, they are under no illusions. Um, I think it's fine. I think if, if, if Nicky wanted to write certain lyrics, um, if that, if he was moved to do that, I think it would be, I think it would be fine. I don't mm. think it'd be any blunter than, I mean, do it, you know, can you, can you get away with this? Idols, the new Idols album. Yeah. Has some of the bluntest lyrics I've heard in my life. You know, when I saw the lyric sheet before I heard the music, because I was reviewing it, I thought, this is, no, no, this, this is really bad. <laughs> and then I heard the album and I was like, oh, yeah, actually, these really blunt lyrics, which are very bad on the page, sound amazing musically. Uh, and that, of course, is the sort of, you know, that's the wonder of, of what James and Sean do with with Nicky's lyrics is that I'm not saying Nicky's lyrics I mean he's like oh he does generally you know very good but a lot of it is, is in the excitement of, of the music so I'm, what I'm saying is there's no reason why they couldn't do that if they wanted but I got a feeling from the interviews I haven't I haven't uh, I haven't interviewed Nicky in a few years since Futurology I think but I got a feeling that he just felt like he didn't know what to say that would be interesting yeah. about it was almost like if you think about the 90s when there weren't so many protest songs like late 90s early noughties there was a lot of room to be kind of really kind of quite provocative and say things that no one else was saying look at masses against the classes you know who else apart from like Rage Against the Machine was doing protest songs at that point like virtually in rock I mean uh, virtually no one whereas I my feeling was that perhaps they got to a point where everything was political and everybody's got an opinion on Trump and Brexit you know and you're going to get you know you're going to get that in an interview with Dua Lipa so it was always like what can the what can the Manics bring and I thought that they leaned more into their sort of the emotional side and the sort of the melancholy yeah they kind of went to things from a different Angle and obviously James now with the Victor Hara concept album is kind of reaching back and telling another story about sort of resistance and, and idealism. Um, and I think that's probably artistically the best choice. I think. Yeah. I think. I think the Manics thrived on being the most political people in the room, and now the politics is. Everywhere. Well, that's it. Now everyone has to have an opinion on everything. You can't just say, I'm going to stand on the fence on this because I don't know enough about the debate or the issue. Right. Now you have to be black or white. You have to be one it or the other. Very, yeah, it breeds very safe opinions as, as, as well. Everybody knows the right thing to say. Uh, and if you say the wrong thing, you will get far more. You know, you'll be trending on Twitter, there'll be a massive mm. backlash. Now, that's not to say that, you know, people there shouldn't be any reaction to what people say, but as a whole, kind of, if you look at some of those Maddox interviews or, you know, interviews by various people, uh, say in the 80s and 90s, and there's all this stuff where you're just like, you wouldn't say that now. The, the outrage. Yeah. Um, the outrage would just be enormous. You know, when I was writing my book about protest songs, there were like all these old music papers where it's quite normal for, for, for you know, quite big names 
to go, I think uh, George Bishop is shot. And they were saying it because they were angry and they were not literally encouraging people to assassinate the president. But now, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. The musician in an interview went, oh, I think so-and-so should be shot. I mean, it'd be awful. <laughs> they get torn apart. And I'm not saying torn apart by a particular group of people because diff- different statements would anger different people. But the whole environment is so different. And so those kind of uh, the more kind of f- f- flamboyant, fearless era of the Manics, I think, is impossible now. Yes. And they do have an emotional um, depth and a kind of increasingly sort of like rueful melancholy that I, I think actually, you know, is still is still something really artistically fertile. They don't have to stand up on stage and say, "Build a bypass over this shithole." Mm. <laughs> it's unbecoming. In your fifties, anyway. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned it earlier. You interviewed them around the time of Know Your Enemy. Um, what do you think were the intentions of the Cuba concert? Because um, it was a big, bold statement, really. Well, there was a big feature in Q, like a kind of oral history, uh, one of the last issues of Q, where they actually talk about all of that. Um, I can't remember what. I think the intentions are probably a bit confused. I think they, they, they like the idea of just doing something kind of uh, different and going somewhere. Um, I don't think they were the first, but they were one of the first. Uh, and, they're, and they're really into the sort of the kind of, the sort of, sort of poisoned idealism of communism, which I, I don't know whether they're into any, so much anymore, but certainly were so at the time. But they had their doubts about it even all the time even while they were there mm. you know oh is this is this just state propaganda you know what about the kind of the oppressive things that the Castro government does you know they were so aware of it they just sort of blunder into it it's almost like they just deliberately went into this environment where they would be uncomfortable which is a very manic <laughs> very manic loads of money in the process but it was sort of like, it was the whole instinct of Know Your Enemy was like, they got as big as, they got bigger than they wanted to be and they headlined Glastonbury and they outsold Everything Must Go and this kind of second act that they'd had after Richie's disappearance, you know, where they become like a mainstream, you know, stadium rock band. Um, and they, you know, headlined the Millennium Stadium on New Year's Eve. And they sort of wanted to destroy it in weird ways. I remember saying, no, you're enemy, who's the enemy? And Nikki was like, it's it's us. Mm. It's what we have become. And I like, but it's not just because I interviewed them for No, Your Enemy and Lifeblood, the two records they most dislike. Um, it's because they were running away from themselves mm. and they didn't know what to be. And then I think they came back with Send Away the Tigers and like, oh, it's okay to be a big it's okay to be a big rock band you don't have to kind of get in your own way but I just thought they were the, and, and, you know the Cuba thing I think was part of that it was like we've got all this power and, and profile that we didn't really want because remember Masters Against the Classes went straight to number one this is a berserk record <laughs> straight to number one uh, you know kind of like Chomsky, uh, Chomsky sampling rock and roll and um, and I think that they just wanted to kind of 
mess push that in a way that might actually backfire and to think that the backfiring was part of the reason for doing it yeah i mean the cuba thing i think some of the intentions seemed good uh at, you know socialism anti-capitalism and an anti-america stance which they've been ingrained as part of the band anyway but i think maybe the media sideshow made it look a bit gimmicky and i think they were like you say they were probably aware of that yeah i mean i think it was more complicated than that because they were they knew that you know they're not these kind of like you know basic you know twitter anti-imperialists that think everybody who hates america is a good guy mm. uh you know they knew they knew the good and the bad of Castro. So it wasn't even like they just went there to go, hooray for Cuba. I think part of it is you go to play to the people of Cuba, you know, which is why a lot of time when people talk about not wanting to say boycott Israel, you know, so they say it's about the people, it's not about the government. And I think they were quite uneasy about having to meet Castro himself. Uh, the reason I'm finding it hard to sum up what they were thinking is because, you know, in this oral history, it's like this so many sort of doubts and contradictions and subtleties and they probably uh, still don't know to this day they st- to be yeah fair. I still don't I think I think I think their natural tone is a certain kind of you know rueful did we did we do the right thing did that work that didn't really work out quite as we'd hoped well you know, there's certain things that had in their life there was a website for life it's like that worked out exactly as they hoped but most of their career is them going, oh, not sure about that. You know, they're very willing to be self-critical in a way that, that again, a lot of bands aren't. Um, do you have any particular favourite political songs of theirs? Uh, I'd probably mention them. I think I think Love of Richard Nixon for being some weird. Freedom of Speech... And hard to, hard to follow. Freedom of Speech with Virgil for being so provocatively anti your classic rock liberal. Uh, and it's also produced by David Holmes, and it just sounds amazing. It's like David Holmes' garage rock. Uh, of Walking Abortion was the one that I wrote about in my protest song um, book. That was kind of the hinge for the, the chapter about the Manics. And I mean, there's so much on there's so much on the Holy Bible where mm. it's just it goes to places that records just don't generally don't go unless you go back to something public image limited joy division there's really not many bands that are willing to go to like and literally just go you know what is human evil <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a lot to take on um and then later i don't know the thing is because when you say songs i'm trying to think of like ones on futurology but it, it what i love on futurology is actually that it's not really protest songs, but there's a sense of political history and European culture. It's I remember more like a celebration, learn. maybe. Yeah, but also an interrogation. I was like learning about, um, you know, Mayakovsky and, you know, the Black Square painting and... Um, which, yeah, to my shame, is a very famous painting which I should have known about before. Um, and Hughes Gofka, Hughes Gofka, uh, 
Yeah, this city in the Ukraine, which was originally named after this uh, Welsh businessman. Um, and you just get sent off, like, learning things mm. about, you know, here's the Welsh connection with the, the Ukraine. And there was a kind of... Um, yeah, there was just so, there was such an openness, there was such a hugeness about it, you know, and uh, Europa... Yeah, it's this sort of like martial, like a kind of militarized gold frat rhythm. Um, and with a German actress on it, and then James kind of like hymning Europe in a way that sounded kind of great, but a little bit scary. <laughs> I, th- I, think that, I think that's an absolutely amazing album in terms of um, just the ideas in it. And I think, like, um, the reason I like a lot of political music is because it's about ideas and it's about the world. And that's more important than the politics. It's about, think, it's ways of thinking about the world. So, of course, you can do a very dull, narrow-minded, incurious political album, which just bangs you over the head with some very basic sort of slogans. Or you can have something like Futurology and... Yeah, you get it, you know your enemy as well, where there's just all these ideas like bouncing around like pinballs and and you think, okay, this kind of this this is fascinating, this works, I'm not sure this one works. But it's that sense of like what can you put what can you put into a rock album? And politics doesn't have to mean anti Donald Trump, anti conservative. It's it's the tapestry of society, I suppose. There's so much yeah. going on. And history. I mean, they know yeah. so much about history. So if you look on, uh, this is my truth, tell me yours. You know, you've got a nice Devon quote there. Um, but if you tolerate this, which is such a subtle, humane, kind of beautiful song, it's infinitely more successful than South Yorkshire mass murder, which is just with it, it's just too angry. It's just so angry about Hillsborough, and it's just this kind of. And they, I guess they put it on the, the album to be just like, well, we're not just a smooth stadium band like this. <laughs> um, but it's just too, it's just too blunt for me. It doesn't really work. And a lot of the stuff that does work is when it's reaching to some reference, you know. And uh, a friend of mine, a music critic, said, you know, that what he, what summed up why he loved the Manics was when you could go to a, you could go to an arena or a stadium show and on the merch stall there'd be people buying, you know, big burly blokes buying t-shirts which had a quote from like Camus or Kierkegaard on them, you know, and all the sleeve, all their sleeves, they've always got these, these fascinating quotes, you know, many of which mean quite a lot to me. Um, there was always great learning, you know, Nick, Nicky is one of, maybe the only person that's just given me books, turned up to an interview and went, oh, I <laughs> bought these poetry books, I thought you might like them. You know, there was a great kind of like learn a generosity and knowledge and enthusiasm, and I think a lot of the best songs have got all these layers that include some of Richie's as well. You know, they've got all these layers in them and all these little fragments of phrases and ideas and allusions, and you're like, um, it gives you it gives you a whole world to explore, which is why you know Jeremy Della when he did his Manix exhibition. Uh, one of the exhibits was just a bookshelf, which was uh, books that the Maddox had mentioned or something about, mentioned in interviews. And it was a whole bookshelf, and you could give that bookshelf to a teenager, and there'd be so much sort of nourishment there. 
and I just found, thought Futurology, which came out when I was like, what, 39? And I was still learning stuff from mechanics. Mm. Um, and I've, I've always just thought that's so wonderful and more, sort of more important than the politics. Because the politics comes, the politics is part of that, I think. It's about, it's about the ideas. It's not, it's not sort of telling you what to think. It's just prompting you to think. As you touched on it earlier, the James album is doing just that, even in exile. It's, it's a record that encompasses dictatorships and atrocities, but he's just managed to make it sound intimate and heartfelt. And that is a complete contradiction to where they would have been 25 years ago. Well, I think part of that is because of, of, of Victor Hara mm. uh, himself, as James says, you know, that Victor Hara is one of the few genuinely kind of Marxist, very hard left musician. But his music sounds so sensitive um, and poetic. And so I think he's sort of, without mimicking him, I think there's some of that, that spirit there. But yeah, I thought it was really fascinating that he was drawn to that. See, Patrick Jones wrote the lyrics, or, you know, Already the bulk of them, mm. um, but yeah, I think that is that that instinct I mentioned earlier about wanting to maybe look back. That at the moment, there was just so much happening, and it's it's really hard sometimes to write a great song about the current moment. Um, and there's a lot of kind of room and emotional room uh, in, in in say Victor Hara's story, and just in. Yeah, just in sort of going back. They've always had a nice thing of honouring people. It's the if you tolerate this thing, you know, honouring the kind of Welsh members of the international brigades. Uh, you know, design for life, honouring the kind of founders of the welfare, welfare state and public libraries. Uh, which is funny because, of course, they started off and they had this reputation of being incredibly... Um, of tearing things down, you know, we destroy rock and roll. I laughed when John Lennon got shot, you know, kill your idols, smash everything, annoy everyone, very punk rock. But actually they've got a kind of deep, you know, a deep love of, um, of a lot of people, historical figures. And, you know, they often write really beautiful songs dedicated to, you know, say Paul Rose and be another one. They've always they've always worn their influences on their sleeve, really, haven't they? And that's that's a good thing. Oh, completely. They was like, right, we want to be like uh, Guns N' Roses uh, meets uh, Public Enemy. And then it turned, you know, later on, you realise that kind of James had this, you know, huge, deep, you know, record collection. It was into all kinds of things, and it was only later. You go, oh, right, yeah, okay, he liked REM. They wouldn't have talked about liking <laughs> REM at the time. <clears throat> but with some of their songs you can you can really hear that um, so there's all these influences that maybe you, you, you don't get you, you dig a bit a little bit deeper but then that said they started putting them on press releases I remember getting sent a press release and they go this is inspired by and they list them all because there was this idea that you were always building on the things that you loved they were like a bedroom wall band you know that mm. they were like that when you're a teenager and you just do a collage of all the kind of cool shit you like and things from movies and records sleeves and, you know, my daughter it still does that now, you know, it's quite a kind of um, it's quite a kind of common instinct, you go this this is a, this is the things I love for all and they sort of turn that into 
a band. Yeah, a collage of inspiration, really. Yeah, but because there were so many things in it, like if you collage three things together, you're derivative. <laughs> if you collage like 33 things together, you know, that you don't expect, then you're original. Uh, and I just liked that was just another one of those things they just didn't apologise for. They were just like, "Yep, we're this. This is we're into a bunch of stuff, and we're going to drop these references, and that's cool. That's good because we want other people to get into this stuff as well." Um, and I still, I still get a thrill when like a younger band will, you know, name a song after a character from a movie or whatever because it's like I rem- that reminds me of. Uh, that reminds me of the Manics. It was just like there was just so much in there. One of the, one of the best bands I want to write about. Yes, because there's so much going on. There's so much going on, and they're they're interested in so many things. They're about so many things, and there's a great kind of like. It's just that they're so alive. They're so like mentally and emotionally alive. Uh, you know, and I, some of the records I I love, and some of them I, I'm less keen on. But there's always like, there's always something important going on, I think, um, which most bands after their first decade can, can, they can't achieve, you know. It's just whatever purpose they had, apart from making a good living and enjoying playing live, has sort of drifted away from them. Absolutely. And I don't think that's happened with the Manates. Um which is why I suppose I prefer the, the albums that they think are massive mistakes to the more, to the ones that were just solid. It's like, I don't, I don't, want, I don't really want a solid Manix album. No, no, that's <laughs> kind of... Or one that goes for it, and either succeeds brilliantly. Yeah, that's kind of how I view Send Away the Tigers. It's solid, it's, it's quite straightforward, brash rock music. That's, that's good, and they're good at it, but it's... It's when they challenge themselves a bit more where I, that's, that's what I relate to. Well, also, I think the thing is, is that, that James is really underrated, I think, uh, as, a, um, as a musician, he could almost do anything. You know, there's like, oh, know your enemy. I mean, it's not a great lyric. <laughs> but Miss Europa Disco Dancer, he was like, can you do disco? Yep, so he's done a song, mm-hmm. he's done, he says a song that sounds like Chic. You know, we can do a song that sounds like Goldfrapp. We can do a song that sounds like The Stooges. You know, not just imitating, but yeah, reminds you of. He can do all those kind of things. So for me, something like Journal for Plague Lovers, where he's just like full on, full on post punk, and sort of in utero era Nirvana. Um, It's just way, or you know, Futurology, where it's more sort of synthesizers and things like that. Or even rewind the film, where it's kind of you know. Uh, more sort of acoustic sounds and sort of 60s pop that stuff I just find more interesting and and he's yeah yeah and he's got the crooner in him as well (laughs) you know over the years that's come out more and more well you can croon or you can do this on this sort of like weird you know European sort of barking at you the kind of (laughs) snapped you know the way this thing is fast but then he can also sing Ocean Spray. And it's like they didn't, um, they don't stop themselves doing things. I think most artists, they, they, they sort of stop themselves doing things. They go, well, this is, we're getting too diffuse here. Right? We can't do all these kind of different 
styles of music uh, because that will get confusing. Mm. Or we can't cram all these lyrics into this melody because that will sound a little bit jarring and odd. Uh, we can't switch gears this often. And with them, and two when they're best, it's like they haven't stopped themselves from doing it. They just said, why, why, why not do that? Absolutely. Um, and sometimes you could go, well, that was a bad idea. But you'd sort of, you'd rather... I'd rather have the Manics bad ideas than a lot of bands good ideas. Yeah, totally agree. If they push themselves, even if you don't like a certain record or a certain song, you know that they've they've tried to push themselves and do something different. Yeah, and I don't think they censor each other. I, I don't think they censor each other. There seems to be a general feeling of like, you know, that, that some of the lyrics, I think, this really isn't one of Nick's best, but you know that James wouldn't have gone about this mate <laughs> James is just like if, look if you want to do this I will give it the best possible music and even if it's a, even if it requires a genre that I've never done before <laughs> I will do that there's an amazing humility to him as a this, their relationship to ego is really fascinating because you've got um, a lyricist who, who doesn't sing he sings a little bit but you know he isn't a front man and you've got a front man who doesn't write the lyrics and they're very sort of self-deprecating considering how intelligent they are um, they're very self-critical and sort of humble with it and it just it's why I'm not surprised that they've lasted that long because there's really nothing to break them on the personality level what would break them would be insane got nothing artistically left to do um, yeah but there's just there's no ego there sometimes they could they could have I thought was think they could afford more ego we'll wrap up now uh, thank you very much for your time it's very appreciated um, is there anything you'd like to plug before you go sell your soul to capitalism as we all must well only that uh, the I suppose the paperback of, uh, of my book Ministry of Truth a biography of Georgia Wells 1984 will be out in January. It contains a very small Mannix reference because of the sample from the movie and yeah. getting it faster. Um, but obviously, Orwell's a bit of a Mannix fave. <laughs> um, so, so yes, and that's that's out in January. Delayed due to COVID, the hardback is uh, is available now. Excellent. Okay, one last thing. I asked guests for their favourite, or one of their favourite Manic songs, because it's always difficult to pick one, to, to play out with. Uh, what would be your pick? Oh yeah, okay, this is a, this is a, I'm, I'm basically thinking of underrated ones. Yeah. Uh, so Know Your Enemy is this forgotten, generally forgotten record. Um, but Found That Soul is my absolute favourite. Oh my goodness. I love Found That Soul. It's so exciting. It's got that kind of insistent piano thing that, you know, John Cale does on, on, on I Wanna Be Your Dog. Um, it's just absolutely thrilling. Um, and perhaps in my, in my head, perhaps the sort of ideal version of what, of what Know Your Enemy would be. 
Yes. Um, yeah, it's one of my favourites too. I'd say probably top five for me, I'd say, if I was to be forced. They brought it back into the set list in about 2016. So I saw, I saw them about three or four times that year, and every time they played Found That Soul. Oh, how brilliant. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Everything Must Go tour. And mm. so I saw them at the Eden Sessions as well when they played it then. It was just like, I was just in my element. I missed the other thing we are going to uh, But yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad. that That's one thing they're really good at doing is, um, is sort of bringing songs back because the ones they always play, um, and they're quite good at kind of uh, at giving, some, at giving some their chance. And I suppose I've heard most of them over the years because sometimes they do those brilliant shows where they're like, we're going to play all the B-sides. <laughs> you know, the Journal for Plague Lovers show where they played everything on Journal for Plague Lovers, probably none of which they've ever played since. No. But yeah, no, I really like, I really like the spiky. I really like that sort of tight, spiky, sort of super disciplined, slightly scary. Yeah. Yeah, and the way James growls and the guitar solo and, uh, yeah. Good. Oh, I'm glad you like that one. Excellent choice. <laughs> and, of course, and, of course, that would have been... That does remind me of the first time I, uh, first time I met them. So that's nice. Now it's time for our new feature, Culture Sluts, where we highlight the arts at a time where we need them the most. My first pick this episode is I Hate Susie. There were some photos posted online. It's not me. No. I wish I was that bitch. So obviously it's not your husband's. <laughs> I'm a terrible mother. Terrible wife. Slightly above average actress. I will not play the victim. It is your greatest role to date. Oh, mummy is going to be your princess. Susie. It's a new drama on Sky Atlantic from Lucy Preble and Billy Piper. Um, well, it's not autobiographical biographical there are certainly strong elements that nod to Billy's professional life 
uh, whether it's the fact that her character Susie Pickles, and that is the name, Susie Pickles, is a, is a former pop star, now actress, actress who is subject to the glare of the media. Um, the story is nude pictures surface of her online, and the show is an uncompromising account of the fallout. It deals with the issues of sexism, i.e. she's 35 and they class her as an uh, ageing actress. Marital problems, celebrity culture, mental health issues, dealt with in many abstract ways. While it's uncomfortable to watch at times, it is really engrossing. The writing and performances are on point. Billy Piper is exceptional. I think it's the best thing I've ever seen her in. Because she has this really multi-layered portrayal of a troubled soul. Then there's the direction and editing, because some of it is so weird and so out there. It, it really has a unique perspective to it. Episode four, and this is not a lie, is a masturbation fever dream. Wow. Mind you, there's an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that is a bit like that. But yeah, it's eight episodes long. It is, while it's dark at theme, there is, there's a real good heart to it. And um, I thoroughly recommend it. I only had one because I knew I was going to talk a lot. I need, I feel like I need to defend my choice. So, okay, prepare yourselves. And I'm going to recommend a podcast that's going to sound strange. I'm going to recommend a podcast called Death in the Afternoon. Now, please let me defend myself before you start going, oh my God, Emma's weird. I am. But I'm not weird for this reason. I had, and I'm going to say had, a really horrendous phobia of death for years and years and years. I To the point that I used to tell people, if I die please put me in a massive like ship container so if I wake up and I'm not actually dead I can move around I won't be in a coffin it'll be won't be horrendous and I just I it was all a time it was a very strange time and I was really petrified and then I discovered a YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician run by Caitlin Doty who is a of course you did of course I did. Uh, she's is run by Caitlin Doty. She is a real life mortician. She runs a funeral home called Clarity in uh, Los Angeles, I believe. And she makes this YouTube, she makes YouTube videos, and she talks. She gets people to ask their questions, and she answers them honestly so you know what happens to you if you want to be embalmed what happens to you if you don't want to be embalmed what's the weirdest thing you've ever found in a body you know like and she answers them all honestly and her videos are really entertaining and then I discovered that she has a podcast which she in season one she hosted with co-hosts Sarah Chavez and Louise Hung uh, I believe Louise Hung is another mortician I don't know if Sarah Chavez is I think she's a historian but I'm not sure um and then in season two Louise Hung is a main host and Caitlin is a contributor to it I know it sounds morbid as fuck <laughs> I'm just gonna throw it out there I realize it sounds morbid as fuck but it's such a fascinating podcast they don't just talk about dead bodies or anything like that they talk about um things like ghost stories and why ghost stories are such a fascination for people um, they talk about why people are so scared of death and where how we can sort of get over that. They talk about um, weird failures and things that have happened with like burials that have gone wrong and stuff like that. They talk about historical situations like the American Civil War and what happened to people during that. But if you are like me and you are somebody who 
I will say currently is, I'm not anymore, but is genuinely phobic of your own mortality, doesn't like thinking about it, is freaked out by it. I find Caitlin's YouTube channel, Ask a Mortician, and the podcast, Death in the Afternoon, really, it's it's completely changed how I feel. Now everybody who knows me knows I want a natural burial, I don't want to be embalmed, I would like, you know, something that will biodegrade or just to be buried in a shroud. I am perfectly fine with all of it i know what i want to happen to me after i die and it's completely changed the way i feel uh, nice weather we've got today isn't it yeah 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 sorry look in fact no hashtag sorry not sorry i assume they they find humor in things as well oh absolutely it's not like one day you will die caitlin's videos are amongst the funniest videos i watch on youtube the podcast has a slightly more serious tone in the second season i would say but still, um, they they it's still funny. They still chat amongst themselves. There's still a lot of sort of humour in it. The videos are... Re- Ask a Mortician, the YouTube channel, it, that is so worth a watch because she makes it funny. She herself... Like, <laughs> this is going to sound awful. She looks the way you would imagine a mortician to look. She's got long jet black hair. She wears quite heavy eye makeup. You know, she has this borderline gothic appearance and it's cut, but she plays on that and is like, I know I look like you expect a mortician to look. She started off working in um, what we would call a crematorium, but in America they're called crematories, I think. Um, You say crematoriums, I say crematories. Exactly. Potato, potato. Yeah, we'll check it out and then delete my internet history. (laughs) Hey, you see, that's a death phobic attitude. You need to be death positive like me. James asks, how prevalent is necrophilia in the funeral industry? Although I know you won't answer this question. Well, that's a rather sassy assumption for you to be making, James. You don't know me. You don't know what I will and will not answer. I know that conversations on necrophilia are not for everyone, even though they should be, because everybody benefits from rational educational exposure to taboo topics. Necrophilia fact, derived from the Greek word for corpse, necros, and love, philia, a Belgian psychologist first coined the term necrophilia in 1850. So, something to share with your friends. Alright, my second pick is the debut album from a DIY punk band called Dream Nails. Uh, they describe themselves as punk witches. They were formed wow. yeah, they were formed by feminist activists in 2015. Uh, they've been on my radar for about three or so years now, and I've been looking forward to this debut and it's finally here. It is it's like a compact rage squeezed into just 24 minutes that's how long the album is 24 minutes but it but it leaves a such an indelible print the songs are catchy fierce and full of refreshing honest anger toxic masculinity sexism capitalism they are all covered um i'm going to play a song from it now this is like a rage against machine style powerhouse it's called payback
That is a wrap for episode seven. Please subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Preach to the speakers at Twitter on MSP underscore pod and Facebook and Instagram. We are Manic Street Speakers. You can also send your written and audio messages to mspod1 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time. We love you one time. We love you two times. We love you three fucking times. It's the toughest guitar in the fucking world. Yeah. <laughs>